Starting the show, though, and taking a look at Nanaimo, it has become the latest place where council is going to explore restricting the use of hard drugs in public places. City councillors, as you've heard on the news, passed that motion for staff to look at options on regulating the use of those controlled substances. Uh, This motion was brought forward by Nanaimo City Councillor Ian Thorpe, and Ian Thorpe is on the line now. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me, Jill. What exactly? So what was the motion that you brought forward to council? Jill, the motion read as follows, and I'll I'll quote it directly, that council directs staff to prepare a report on options to regulate the use of controlled substances in public spaces, including a summary of steps being proposed in other British Columbia communities following provincial decriminalization, end quote. And how how was it received by your fellow councillors? It provoked uh, um, a very interesting and fairly lengthy debate, uh, Jill. To be honest, I thought it would have more uh, unanimous support than it got. It ended up passing with a 5-4 uh, vote, which I, I'm pleased that it passed. Uh, with, I think there was some confusion over whether the, the motion was intended to actually introduce a new bylaw And at this point, it's not. It's looking for options to help us deal with what we have seen and other communities have seen throughout our province and country in terms of social disorder caused by open drug use on our streets. And how big of an issue is it as far as drug use in public places in Nanaimo? I don't think it's worse than anywhere else, to be honest, although I can't uh, quantify that, but certainly council continually hears concerns and complaints from our citizens that they feel uncomfortable or unsafe uh, downtown on our streets when they see people openly doing drugs. And similarly, in public places, especially playgrounds where children are involved, where there have been instances of drug paraphernalia being found, and again, people sitting around openly doing drugs. And it it just doesn't create a family-friendly or tourist-friendly atmosphere for any of our taxpaying citizens. Do you think the problem has gotten worse since decriminalization or since, uh, since other places have, have moved to decriminalize small amounts of drugs? I think, I think it has. I think it's made a difference. Uh, since decriminalization, uh, the police or bylaws have no excuse to try and uh, get people to move away from areas where uh, there is a, a large amount of public traffic. And, and so we are, we are really handcuffed and, and we often hear the, the, um, um, sorry, the comparison that, uh, people are not allowed to stand outside a doorway and smoke. They're not allowed to drink in public, but, uh, right now the way things sit, it's all right for people to sit or stand and openly do drugs. Uh, And you are one of uh, a number of cities and municipalities that are looking at uh, what options you could have about regulating drug use, about stopping its use in public spaces. Uh, The Premier also uh, did admit, uh, finally uh, being questioned about this by some of the BC United members, the Premier did admit that something needs to be done, that that I think the direct quote, and Vaughn Palmer has written a, a very detailed piece about this, uh, the direct quote was that nobody wants this activity affecting our kids and saying that we will do something. Uh, do you think the province does need to do more in that this is something that's not unique, like you said, to Nanaimo, this is happening in communities throughout the province? 
Yes, absolutely. And and I was very encouraged to read uh, today and hear today on the news that the Premier, I think, is getting the message and hearing the concerns of communities and is recognizing that the province does need to do more. Um, and and what that consists of, I think uh, we'll have to have discussions to, to see how the province can help municipalities such as Nanaimo. Certainly in terms of the people that are using the drugs, uh, there's, there's ongoing debate about... Uh, uh, safe supply, about the need for treatment centers, about the need for more housing, and so on. Those are all issues that are largely outside of the control or totally outside of the control of municipalities. But what we want to be able to control is uh, protection of our citizens and our business owners. So I think we need to approach the, the problem, if you call it that, or the issue from, from both sides. And from the municipal, municipalities' side, uh, possibly some type of bylaw, a nuisance bylaw. I know that Kamloops has passed something recently banning illicit drug use within 100 meters of municipal parks and playgrounds and sidewalks. Uh, so that is that is one thing that's being looked at. Sycamuse, Penticton are considering similar measures, uh, and I know of other communities as well. So that that is one type of option, and there may well be others. And that's what we want to investigate. And it sounds like the Premier is now uh, expressing a willingness to investigate those options. Uh, do you feel, though, that even if it did come in the form of a bylaw or, or something that does ban this behavior, the use of illicit drugs in public places, will it actually make a difference? I mean, we're talking about people that are using these drugs for a variety of reasons. Uh, in many cases, we're talking about people who are homeless. Is this going to stop this behavior? No, of course it's not, and that's uh, that's unfortunate, and that's where, as I indicated, the the other side of the problem needs to be addressed as well, and that is to deal with with the homeless issue, with the uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, an emphasis more on treatment centers and encouraging people to take advantage of those, or or in fact, as our mayor has suggested, uh, an involuntary referral if needed for drug treatment. So that's, that, that's been a, um, part of a much bigger conversation that I think needs to happen and happen quickly. But in the meantime, this is meant to, my, my proposal is meant to ask what can we do at the local level right now to make our citizens feel safer on our downtown streets and in our playgrounds? When do you expect that this will come back or that staff, were they given a timeline as far as when to come back with those options? No, I, I deliberately did not put a timeline on it because I don't think that's fair to staff. They have a lot of priorities. However, I, I suspect this will move quickly, simply as you've indicated, Jill, because the Premier has uh, announced that he has, he has heard municipalities and their concerns. And I think now the door is open for having a serious look at what options are available. That might include certain bylaws. It might involve other uh, other uh, innovative strategies. But I think that conversation is going to be happening very quickly, and I certainly hope so. All right. Councillor Thorpe, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Well, staying in the Nanaimo area, we uh, were talking to City Councillor Ian Thorpe about his motion, which was approved in a 5-4 vote. A lot of discussion there to direct staff to look at ways to restrict the use of hard drugs in public places. Well, Leonard Krogh is joining the show now, the mayor of Nanaimo. Mayor Krogh, thank you so much for your time. 
Uh, Good afternoon. Delighted to be on. Thank you. Well, I also want to talk about uh, bail reform and what was announced from the federal justice minister uh, as well. But uh, I'm curious, before we do that, what are your thoughts on this idea of staff coming back uh, with this uh, ideas on on restricting drug use in public places and whether or not that will have any impact? I'm very happy to see it. And as I explained during my support of the motion, uh, for me, it's around a, a cry from the community Uh, that we are feeling overwhelmed by what's happening in our streets. Uh, You can't tell me that there's public support for open public drug use uh, in the streets of Nanaimo or any community. And this is a way of getting the province's attention. And it would appear, based on reports today, that that Premier Eby and the government have, have heard the mayors on behalf of their respective communities across this province who want to see uh, restrictions placed on it if you're going to continue with this policy. We don't want our parks, our public spaces, populated by people openly taking drugs, which many regard as poison. Do you think, though, and Councillor Thorpe touched on this as well, and I know it's not the jurisdiction of a civic council, but when we talk about things like treatment centres and the other supports that are needed, are those available in Nanaimo? Uh, No more so than any other community across the province. And, you know, for three and a half years, I've been calling for complex care for severe cases and calling for the council as a whole, have been calling for supportive housing, calling for the continuum of treatment that's necessary. Um, You know, I I think that governments often have come at this from the wrong end. Uh, People expect there to be that kind of treatment available to support people. They appreciate that they are somebody's daughters and sons and nieces and nephews and indeed parents out in the street and they want to see those supports but allowing for open drug use is not going to appeal to the average citizen raising their children in communities where people are openly using drugs is not seen by anybody as healthy all right. So, well, we'll see what happens with staff coming back and uh, with the Premier again, like you said, saying that they are going to do something. We're just not uh, sure what that is going to look like at this point. Curious your thoughts on the announcement from Federal Justice Minister David Lametti, new legislation that responds to bail reform concerns and a lot of the concerns that were raised by the B.C. government. So what are your thoughts on, on whether or not that is going to have an impact? I think it is going to have a very positive impact. It's not going to solve the problems of everybody, but it will remove from the streets uh, dangerous individuals who are often largely incorrigible, who will continue to commit offences, who will continue to terrorise the public, but not just the public generally. And please, I don't want to separate the community. Those living in the streets are probably the most vulnerable, the most subject to the kinds of aggressive behaviors that frighten people. Uh, There's a reason people living in the streets pack weapons. It is not necessarily to use an assault, it is to protect themselves. And so the kind of provision that recognizes that dangerous individuals who have a, a propensity to commit acts of violence shouldn't be out on bail pending hearing of their charges and appropriate disposition by a court which may indeed find them innocent at some point. That's our system. Thank goodness for it. People should be grateful for it. But having said that, I think it represents the strong public will. It represents concerns raised by the BC Urban Mayor's Caucus, by municipal governments. And credit to the Premier and our Attorney General here in British Columbia. 
Uh, the federal minister of justice has heard the cry from across the country from all the premiers. This represents a positive change in public policy, a positive step for public safety, and as I say, safety for every one of us, whether we're housed or unhoused. The um, One of the points in this that is getting a lot of attention is the, the part of the legislation with the reverse onus, that meaning uh, that repeat violent offenders, they would have to remain behind bars while they are awaiting uh, their trial unless they can convince a judge, uh, give the judge reasons on why they should be released. Does that give you some confidence that, like you said, that people will be held? Absolutely gives me confidence. Look, I'm a lawyer by profession. I can remember when the bail provisions were changed in this country to put the onus on the Crown in all cases generally to ensure that that people were released pending trial or disposition of charges on a range of crimes, just the criminal code period in the general sense. Um, That has, in my respectful opinion, gone too far. And so that we've now seen in the last few years, particularly as a result of potentially well-intentioned changes by the federal government has led to the situation where you are seeing, I would argue, and the public believes, dangerous offenders waiting charges back on the streets uh, as fast as you can say Jack Robinson when in fact they should be held in custody pending trial and disposition. Don't judges, though, without this legislation, judges do have discretion, don't they? If they see somebody's sheet filled with crimes and, and, as a, and sees that they're a repeat offender, they currently do have the discretion, don't they, to keep somebody behind bars? They, they have that discretion, but that discretion is, prescri- is, is circumscribed by law. And if the criminal code says that... Uh, the onus is on uh, the Crown to ensure or prove that someone is generally dangerous, you are going to have those grayish areas. That's what discretion involves. It means you are leaving it up to uh, judges to apply the law as best they can, and they may not reflect public will or, in fact, uh, interpret the law in accordance with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which has had an enormous impact on criminal justice in this country, uh, so that you do see more dangerous offenders out there. I mean, look, I, I don't. if it leads, it leads in the media. Don't take that as a criticism. But having said that, um, we have certainly seen a number of unprovoked attacks on individuals, uh, on, on various people in our communities across this country in the last two years. Uh, this change or proposed change uh, to bail is a reaction to that. I think it's a positive reaction. And as I say, I'm grateful to the government of British Columbia and the other premiers across this country who have clearly listened. And I'm grateful to the federal minister of justice who's clearly listened as well. All right. Mayor Leonard Krogh, thank you so much for your time today. No, and thank you as always for drawing attention to these issues. I've been talking about the street disorder and related issues for a long time, and I'm very pleased to see the media taking strong interest, because then we'll get something done. We'll see the kind of supports that are necessary to reduce the street disorder and make us all not only feel safe, but be safe. Thank you. It's time to check in with Claire Newell, as we do every Wednesday afternoon. Claire, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Well, kind of, because let me tell you, at the top of the travel news is not a good story with this whole WestJet potential strike. Yeah, I know so many people are watching this and uh, people who have tickets booked, not quite sure what to do. What are you telling uh, people in that scenario? 
Well, it's such a time of uncertainty, you know, not only for the airline and the pilots, but for all of the people who have these imminent tickets. So um, it's been very interesting to watch how WestJet has gone about this since the strike notice was given yesterday. Well, uh, we the night before. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, they must be worried because they're making it easy for people to actually make changes. So what they're doing is they're looking at a very small window. And that window right now is from May 16th departures through until the 21st. Obviously, they don't want to cancel everything because who knows, the strike may be averted. And one of the things that I, you know, I've seen over the years, 30 years of this, is that when it when you're dealing with labor um, agreements, often at the very 11th hour, there'll be some sort of a settlement. But um, that might be too late for certain people. So there's a couple of different options. And, and we're seeing people do all of these, I have to say. It really is up to the individual and their, um, their circumstances around why or where they're going and, and what, what's happening. So um, for, there are many who are just keeping it as is and just waiting to see what happens. Uh, the airline may rebook them. Um, if there isn't a flight that's available or suitable, then you can cancel for a full refund if you choose that. They are allowing people to change their flights, a one-time uh, change with no fee at all, and you can change it to different dates that might suit you. And the other option is to cancel and get a full refund and then rebook yourself on whatever flight is going to suit you. Now, where I would see that come into play, Jill, is for people who have something that is super expensive, like a tour or a cruise on an overseas flight that they're connecting, because WestJet goes all over the world. I mean, they go to Tokyo now, they go to Europe, they're flying into the U.S. and Mexico, the Caribbean, all over the world. Um, in fact, on Friday, there's 540 flights scheduled to leave, and on Saturday, 457. So we're talking a massive amount of people that may be inconvenient. So um, the reason I would say if they've got something that's time-sensitive, like a wedding, or they're connecting with something that they're doing right after their flight, is because they don't want anything to go awry. And um, a lot of people, if a strike actually happens, will be jumping onto other flights and looking for, for solutions. So this 72-hour period of the strike notice is important for those people to actually find another airline to get them where they want to go and make sure that they're on a flight that does go. Um, there, there's another alternative, and we're seeing people do this, which is um, an expensive way of insurance, Jill, and they're booking fully refundable tickets on another airline mm. uh, just as some, a form of insurance. They could cancel those. That's why I said fully refundable. Um, but if a strike happens, they could potentially have that as the backup. Right. So, yeah. So, like you said, an expensive one, but to have that kind of in your back pocket, given that I think we heard from the CEO at WestJet last night saying they're still really far apart. But like you said, with labor things, they can always there's the potential they could reach a deal. But who knows? Yeah. And one of the things that I've been hearing is like, wow, are the other airlines going to price gouge during the, you know, for those flights or or what's happening? The reality is, is that airlines aren't price gouging when it's within a week of departure. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is that if you book within a week of a flight, it's always like full price virtually. And the other, I mean, there's very few kind of last amenities if you're leaving within a week. The other thing, it's coming up to Maylon weekend. These flights are full. And so 
prices go up, supply and demand. Now, I have seen um, some airlines come say that they're coming to the table. Flair announced yesterday they're ready and willing and to add contingency flights. So it really depends on the route that you have scheduled. Like, for example, if you're Vancouver-Nashville nonstop, well, they, that's the only game in town. You might have to go on a connecting flight with another airline. Small cities, like um, we had someone going from Dawson Creek to Vancouver. Well, there is no other option. Everything else is full. The planes that fly that route are really, really small. So it's super expensive. And they can't even get on. But other places, like between Vancouver and Calgary and Edmonton, Vancouver to Toronto, there's so much. Um, in the way of capacity because there's so many players. You know, we have mentioned this before. There is Canada Jetline, Flair, Lynx, Porter. Like They're all doing domestic. So it really depends on where you're going, what your options may be. All right. Well, we will keep on top of that and make sure we report if there are any changes with those negotiations ongoing. What else is happening in travel news today? Well, um, there is some interesting insights, consumer insights about the data and analytic from data and analytics company JD Powers, and they recently published their 2023 North American Airline Satisfaction Study. And so, I just wanted to see kind of where some of the Canadian airlines were faring on that list. So, so first in business class for those lucky enough to do that, uh, Air Canada was named fifth best airline for first in business class. The number one was actually JetBlue. So if you're lucky enough to do the Vancouver to New York or Vancouver, Boston, to try that, that would be um, obviously really nice because they were the number one. Um, Premium economy, that's that category right between economy and business class. And a lot of people like that. It's not like crazy expensive like the business classes are, but uh, it's a nice service. Air Canada also ranked fifth on that. Uh, Delta was number one for premium economy, and uh, uh, JetBlue was number two. And then in economy, which most of us fly, WestJet was number five. Air Canada was number eight. Number one, this is interesting, Southwest. Hmm. Now, keep in mind that part of this, the factor, uh, what's factored in on this, there's actually eight metrics. It's the aircraft, baggage, boarding, check-in, cost, and fees. Like, obviously, things are really expensive. So Southwest is pretty cheap. So obviously, Hmm. number one for Southwest, that would be huge. They also look at flight crew, in-flight service, and there are a couple of other categories. All right. Interesting rankings, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed as well, so Flair, I, I know there were a lot of complaints about Flair, yeah. especially during uh, the, the holiday season, but this is uh, some good news, or, or it seems like they're doing uh, better. Yeah, and I wanted to share this because, you know, they, they did take it on the chin. There were some real issues with them. But I looked at the April 2023 load factors and their on-time performance, which is key indicators of how an airline's doing. And Flair announced that they were 74.1% of their flights in April were on time. That means they landed within 15 minutes of the scheduled time. They also said that their load factor was 90.3%. That's good. Um, They had 394,000, well, over 394,000 passengers booked. They also have committed to releasing uh, these timely monthly operational metrics, which is a first in Canada. I haven't seen this on a regular basis, so that's interesting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And what else is that? You mentioned uh, most of us do travel economy, but uh, Air New Zealand is, this this doesn't, these two things don't often go together. New economy class sleep pods. 
Okay, this is a really cool feature, and it's actually they're called sky nests. <laughs> and Air New Zealand always do does these um, kind of new concept things, and this is set to launch in September of. 2024, and they're going to offer beds on board for economy class passengers. They'll be located in the uh, between economy and premium economy, and they're bunk beds. And on those long haul flights, including ones that are will fly between Auckland and Vancouver, you're able to kind of pre-book a slot in four hour chunks, and the cost is about between around 250 and 380, which I think would be good i might block two of them <laughs> um, because sometimes those long-haul flights can be literally th- thousands more expensive like six seven thousand dollars to do a round-trip business class this would be considerably cheaper and i think a four-hour block would be awesome yeah bunk um, beds on a plane interesting yeah and so you would that would be a fee in addition to the cost of your economy seat and it's um on several of their boeing 787s all right. And uh, a little closer to home as well for people that like Vegas. One of the big Vegas, uh, well, the, the convention center, it's uh, getting a facelift. Yeah, this is interesting. And the way that they're doing it, first of all, Las Vegas is the third largest convention uh, destination in the U.S. It's just behind Chicago and Orlando. But they're committing $600 million to renovate it. But it's not going to be torn down. And they're during the construction, they're still going to host conventions. So it's, um, it's, it's the, the 1.4 million square foot facility. It's not going to be disrupted. They're just kind of adding to it. And the project is actually set to be completed quite quickly, actually, by 2025. I mean, a $600 million renovation, you can imagine it's going to be pretty significant. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, let's just uh, touch on one more before we get to the deals. And uh, this is interesting, too, because I, I know this might freak people out being on a plane for this long, but a new contender for the world's longest flight. I know I can sleep on a plane, so this does not scare me. In fact, I'd probably love to be able to do this because there wouldn't be a connection. But it's going to be with Qantas Airways, and it's going to be flying from Sydney, Australia to London in 2025. And it's going to go over 10,500 miles. So keep that number in mind, 10,500 miles. That's about 20 hours in the air. But right now, um, since 2016, the world's longest flight is with Singapore Airlines from uh, Singapore to New York. And that's only going 9,500 miles. So a thousand miles longer. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. So, yeah, there'll be people who say, no way, I'm not going on a plane for 20 hours. And then there'll be others, maybe like me, that will say, if that's the fastest way to get from A to B, I'm there. (laughs) All right. 20 hours. That's a long time on a plane. (laughs) Uh, What deals do you have for us today? Well, I have uh, an Alaska cruise, seven nights sailing round trip Vancouver, a couple of dates in September, the 17th or 22nd. Keeping in mind, though, this has to be booked by May 20th, which is coming up fast. But this seven-night cruise round trip Vancouver to Alaska is four ninety-nine. The taxes of three twenty-nine. Lots of people are doing Alaska this year and taking advantage of the fact that they don't have to do any air. They don't have to go to any airports. They just boom, get on and walk off after their vacation. Um, Honolulu, Hawaii. There's a really great window if you can do it between November twentieth and December fourth. Airfare and seven nights hotel, six ninety-nine. Jill. The taxes are four fifty five. Um, there were some seats in September, and over those dates, for a hundred dollars less, it's creeping up as as people buy it. That's normal. 
Uh, but this is still an unbelievable deal. Um, do we have time for a couple of more? Or uh, one? Let's do, do one more. Know? One more, sure. Okay, I'm going to share this one that's a two-for-one river cruise doing the Rhine and Moselle. So this is such a pretty part of the world. Cochem, Coblenz, it's so pretty. And it's, the nice thing about it, you can get airfare nonstop to Frankfurt because it's going round trip from there. And peak dates, August 21st or 28th. It's a seven-night all-inclusive river cruise with sightseeing tours that are guided, all of the gratuities, transfers, all of it. The first guest pays thirty-six forty-nine. The taxes are three eighty, and the second guest goes free. They just pay the taxes of three eighty. That is a really good buy. We've never seen a two for one for a river cruise. All right, lots of great deals, and all on the website as well. Claire, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Talk to you next week. Well, coming up this half hour, we are going to check in with Vancouver police talking more about that story of somebody posing as a massage therapist on English Bay at an English Bay beach. But before we do that, talking about some disturbing allegations at another beach in the Vancouver area, this one at Wreck Beach. And once again, beachgoers say that pictures are being taken without consent. Paul Brar is the division manager of regional parks for Metro Vancouver and is on the line with us now. Paul, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Thank you, Jill, for having me today. Uh, What have you heard or or what kind of complaints have been made when it comes to people being on Wreck Beach, which, as I think most people know, is a clothing optional beach and people taking photos? Yes, Jill. um, Wreck Beach is is one of the world's top uh, clothing optional beaches and um, it's known for its seclusion and people value it for its seclusion and the ability to maintain a bit of privacy um, when they're sunbathing nude. In recent years, uh, the, the number of people at the beach has, has really surged. Um, it is quite popular, making it harder to find those kind of more secluded areas to, to sunbathe. And the integration of cameras into the common smartphone makes the prevalence of cameras um, kind of more, more uh, everywhere you go. And so the challenge we've been having is um, ensuring, you know, ensuring that people are respect other people's privacy are mindful when they use their phones so they're not taking pictures of other people. And uh, last weekend, there was 15,000 people uh, at Rec Beach over the Saturday and Sunday. And, um, and there, you know, people were out taking pictures and photographs. And it's, uh, we, we encourage people to keep the cameras pointed either at themselves in terms of a selfie or at the beautiful sunset and not at other people. Wow, that seems like a lot of people. Is that is that above average as far as the number of people using that beach? It was a it was a spectacularly hot day and hot weekend. Um, it was one of the, the, the first real sunny summer summer like weather conditions. It does get upwards to fifteen to twenty thousand people on a weekend. So we have been seeing those numbers in recent years. Yes. And when you talk about photos, then you're right that everybody, I think, or most people do have a smartphone or have a camera of some kind on them. A big difference, though, uh, taking a selfie, uh, showing, uh, you know, taking fun pictures when you're at the beach and and somebody, beachgoers saying that that in some cases, though, feeling uncomfortable because it appears that people are there specifically to take photos of of other people. Uh, I know there is signage. Is there clear signage on that beach telling people that, that it's not okay? okay to take photos the the signage that we have at the beach is that uh, to respect people's privacy uh, because we don't prohibit people from from taking photographs because 
uh, people can you know take photographs of their families or or, or of the sunset or nature. Um, so it's more of an etiquette thing versus a prohibition. Um, so there is a beach etiquette um, that is really important, and the etiquette is to not take pictures of other people or people in it. And we we try to achieve um, you know the education on that etiquette through our uniformed staff. So the uniformed parks rangers who patrol the beach and um, they look out for this type of behavior uh, and they encourage um, uh, people to report any incidents to them. One of the things that we've noticed is um, there's a lot of tourists coming to the site. There's a lot of um, new kind of new residents or new visitors that are discovering the beauty of Wreck Beach and they may not be familiar with the, the kind of beach norms and it's a really novel site, so they might have the tendency to go and take a picture or, or take a video. And those are the people particularly that we have conversations with to let them know really quickly what the, the, the norms and the culture is at the beach in terms of photography. Right. And if a, so if a staff ranger or a, a staff member, one of the uniform staff members, if they see somebody doing that, what happens? If they, if they see someone doing that, they will immediately um, have a conversation, approach the individual, have a conversation, and um, let them know that the, them having their phone out and taking videos of photography can be uh, very sensitive and uncomfortable for other people, and we would ask them to, to, not, um, to not do that. Right. And but it's not. And when we're talking about etiquette and it's I think most people would agree it's not cool to do that, but it's not technically something that, that's ticketable or something that that goes against a bylaw or something. It, it's challenging to, to prove anything like that if there is any kind of active um, uh, you know, criminal type activity that is taking place. And uh, the, the, the general rule of thumb is if there's anything that's making you feel uncomfortable or if you see something that looks suspicious or doesn't feel right to report that to our staff and they will follow up. And if there's any situation where you're feeling unsafe, um, please contact the UBC RCMP attachment uh, or our staff as well. And we, we do take these matters quite seriously. Do you keep the statistics on that then? Or do you know how many calls have been made either to Metro Vancouver staff or to the RCMP about uh, uh, situations that people are uncomfortable with on Rec Beach? Uh, we don't have any kind of statistics or um, numbers on, on, on that. All right. Just because I know we've talked in the past as well about some of the issues when it comes to security or patrolling uh, things like alcohol use or open drug use. I, I know that's something that, that has been discussed or has been brought up as, as there can be issues. Uh, that's correct. We do keep the statistics on, on police incidents, um, medical emergencies, those types of things. And I believe we discussed those uh, a few months ago. Right. Uh, but for these types of situations where... Um, uh, people feel uncomfortable. And, and the, the reality is a lot of times people don't actually report that into us. So we're not, uh, we're aware of these types of things. Um, discomfort can happen. We've heard of incidences where sometimes the, the people on the beach, you know, police, police it themselves and it creates some conflicts and we have to respond. Um, we, we don't encourage that. We do encourage people to come and find our staff uh, and we will follow up. All right. Do you have any concerns that with the popularity of Wreck Beach, like you said, a lot of tourists will go there, people know it around the world, and more and more people are going. Do you have any concerns that there isn't perhaps enough security, or like you said, there isn't maybe enough space for people to, to go and have their privacy respected? It, the, the, the main beach can get quite busy during sunny weekends, so it, it is um, for people who are seeking kind of the more 
secluded uh, beach experience. Um, it might be uh, good to plan your visit uh, around the busy times um, or to find those, come early to find those spots. Um, in terms of um, security and safety, our, our staff do a really good job of, of having a presence down at the beach. Um, closing the beach at night sometimes can be a challenge. Um, we, we, we don't allow people to be on the beach overnight due to the risk of fires. So that is a challenge and there's a lot of people to try to clear, clear them from the beach. But in, with respect to um, those seeking to sunbathe uh, with some privacy, uh, we, we do advise um, them to come early to get those secluded spots um, or to understand that the beach does get really busy and um, there is a chance that somebody would be taking a photograph and might accidentally capture them in a, in a photo or an image, um, uh, you know, not even if there's any malintent mal there. All right. Uh, interesting when you talk about closing the beach at night. What would happen in a scenario like that? I, I'm sure it's been, uh, there, that has happened when it's been super busy. And, and even though people are told it's closed, go home, they stay anyway. We, we Our staff don't leave the beach until it's been cleared. So that process can take some time um, when it's really busy. And we, um, we have really great partnership with the UBC uh, RCMP detachment to facil- help us with that, uh, particularly during the busy summer months. Um, but it can be a challenge, but, uh, but we get it done. We get it done. All right. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for coming back on the show and talking about this. Appreciate your time today. Anytime. Thanks a lot, Jill. Well, as you likely heard on the news, Vancouver police are investigating a sexual assault that took place at a very popular and busy beach. It happened in English Bay. And joining the show now to explain a little bit more about what happened is Constable Tanya Visentine, Media Relations Officer for Public Affairs at the Vancouver Police Department. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, So what happened uh, to this uh, woman who was on the beach at English Bay? So on Sunday night at around 7.30, a woman in her 40s was just laying on the beach when she was approached by a man who claimed to be a massage therapist. So this man began touching her and then eventually sexually sexually assaulting her, and then he walked away. So the victim did the right thing. She called 911 immediately. She provided a description of the suspect and where he was or what direction he was walking towards. So our officers were able to uh, get to the area quick. He was arrested. Charges have not yet been approved by Crown as the investigation uh, is ongoing. Uh, so he approached her and and said that it sounds like he didn't not I'm not sure anybody would consent to to that even if somebody claimed to be a massage therapist but it sounds like it happened did it happen quite quickly and that he said that but then then she was assaulted I don't have exact details on the length of time, but I don't believe it was a quick interaction. There was definitely unwanted touching, um, and we do believe she was sexually assaulted. We also believe that this same person, this man, may have approached another or a number of people on the beach. Um, And so we're looking to speak to anyone who this person may have approached or if anybody saw uh, this man committing the sexual assault. We want them to call uh, our officers immediately. Right. So, and the idea being that perhaps if this happened to, to one woman, it could have happened to other people who were at that beach. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is English Bay on a really hot Sunday night on a weekend night. So, uh, we believe that he may have approached other people, uh, and they're, 
we also believe that there were people who saw him massaging others and whatnot. So there is a description of him on our website, as well as our social media channels, if your listeners want to have a look. And if, if this rings a bell for anybody, then please call us. Uh, have you had any other reports like this, even maybe not even from Sunday evening? Or is this something that you've heard of or something that has happened before? Well, in this case, I mean, uh, I, I hate to say it, but yes, sexual assaults do happen. Um, you, uh, unwanted touching, unwanted interactions with people do happen. Uh, and so this person did the absolute right thing. She called 911 immediately. She gave a good description. She told officers the direction this man was traveling, and we were able to get there and, and make an arrest. And so at this point, though, because he hasn't been charged, my guess is he's been released, and, and, and this is something that he's been released as the investigation continues? That's right. He, charges have not been approved, and the investigation is ongoing. And when when you talk about that, that sexual assaults do happen and uh, unfortunate that they do, is it also in that if, if somebody, I mean, clearly he was at the beach knowing it was going to be a busy place and there would be people enjoying, like you said, enjoying a, a hot summer-like evening. Uh, is it kind of uh, a, a, um, a, taking that opportunity or, or, or do you see that people maybe are, are when you're enjoying the beach, that there are going to be people who are going to take advantage of that? Well, we don't know the motive uh, in this case, and we do know or that's something that's still under investigation. So uh, if anybody did have any interaction with this man, this will help build this case, and, and we want to open any other cases that uh, or if there's any other victims out there, we want to open them and investigate those as well. All right. I know the. Um, I think the description is on our website as well, but can you give us the description of this person? Yeah, so he's a South Asian man in his 30s. He has a medium-heavy build uh, with short, dark hair. And at the time of the offense, he was wearing a black hat with black sunglasses, a white and blue striped shirt, and beige cargo shorts. Right. And so, again, asking anybody who might have seen this person, are you asking for people then that not only maybe witnessed the assault on this woman, but may have just seen somebody that matches that description in general that day? Yeah, anyone with information. So we believe that this same man may have approached a number of people on the beach. So we want to speak to anyone who interacted with him or saw him massage other beachgoers. We, if anybody has information, uh, we want to speak with them. And is, is the advice then, obviously, uh, I mean, this woman didn't do anything wrong, but is the advice then that uh, yeah, you kind of need to be aware of your surroundings or even more so when you are on the beaches or when you're in that position? Well, maybe you're just trying to enjoy a summer evening. I mean, in this case, uh, like, th- this woman did nothing wrong. She was on the beach uh, enjoying the night, and she did the absolute right thing by calling us immediately so we're able to, A, arrest him, and B, uh, start up investigation. So, yeah, she, she did the right thing in this case. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, for bringing us the very latest on this. Uh, appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jill.